Welcome back to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. My compatriot Ashley Stone is out this week. Um, today's episode, we are talking with Tyson Johnson, the Chief Operating Officer of Cyber NB or Cyber New Brunswick, which is a special operating agency up in New Brunswick, Canada. Um, a lot of impressive things coming out of this little office. I think most people, when asked, would not know that uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick, is this world-class center of excellence for cybersecurity. Um, but it is a fascinating story about how they are coordinating academia, private enterprise, uh, the local workforce to build a very healthy cybersecurity ecosystem and how they are trying to encourage that level of collaboration across uh, both Canada and the world. But uh, without further ado, I will let Tyson take it away. Tyson speaking. Hey, Tyson. This is George with Safeguard Cyber. How are you? Good, George. How are you? All right. Thank you for taking the time. We look forward to talking with you today. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Well, we had a, a great time um, learning about uh, CyberMB while we were up there in Fredericton, New Brunswick, for our listeners, that is in Canada. Um, and I think it came as no as a great surprise to me, um, the organization and also the ecosystem it's building. So for, for the benefit of our listeners, could you give us a, a little background about what is Cyber NB or Cyber New Brunswick's remit and mission? Sure. Well, I welcome the opportunity. So Cyber NB was created about three years ago. And um, CyberMB's goal is to uh, drive economic growth, uh, in particular in the province of New Brunswick. And we, we find that we're now expanding beyond those particular uh, geographic borders uh, through the development of a um, cluster or an ecosystem initiative around cybersecurity specific to critical infrastructure protection. And so as a result, over the last three years, uh, we have focused on four key areas to help grow that ecosystem. Uh, one is around identifying the interactions and coordinating uh, relationships between government, academia, and industry uh, in the area of cybersecurity for critical infrastructure protection and mm -hmm. uh, working closely with the education programs from kindergarten to grade 12, post-secondary, and professional certification. Uh, and then uh, working again on uh, areas around uh, Compliance, so areas of um, business certification, adopting the Cyber Essentials um, program out of the UK and Canadianizing that, uh, and then uh, finding ways to help scale and, and grow companies that are uh, startups or scale ups here in the ecosystem. Well, it sounds like you have a, a broad suite of responsibilities. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you have a sense as to, you know, how this? came to be in terms of vision what did new brunswick benefit from a particularly progressive political outlook or it just seems very well coordinated and more or less a model for a lot of other organizations but it seems that you guys are accomplishing a lot of what people aspire to but haven't been able to get off the ground that's a great question. I, I would argue there are some real comparative advantages here in the East Coast and in New Brunswick in particular around cybersecurity for critical infrastructure protection. But there was indeed a um, kind of a, a perfect storm um, around uh, the politics of the day, 
um, a fortuitous trip by the CEO of our economic development agency to Israel, um, only to learn that Israel was uh, mentioning New Brunswick and the center of excellence that IBM had set up here in the province. Mm-hmm. So, so when you look at the so, so when you look at the province, you have uh, centers of excellence for cybersecurity uh, at universities like University of New Brunswick, um, at community colleges, at private institutions. You have um, a wealth of critical infrastructure uh, here in the province. So you have deep water ports, you have uh, nuclear power, uh, hydroelectric, you have massive dark fiber runs in one of the most digitally connected uh, mm-hmm. provinces in the country. Um, and then you have massive groups like Envy Power who are um, industry, you know, industry organizations or crown corporations that actually own the, the, the entire vertical in areas of power generation, power distribution. And so what we found ourselves was uh, sitting at the crossroads of government, academia, and industry in a province that had the political will to move forward on cybersecurity for uh, economic development. And so that created the, the, you know, that, that tilled the soil and allowed this strategy to be developed. And now we're trying to operationalize that strategy uh, year over year and continue to grow that. Cool. So again, coming back to this idea that, New Brunswick is accomplishing what many say they want to do, but it just seems to either stall or spin out. Um, What are, if you were trying to advise um, other, either parts of Canada or other countries, I think it's my understanding that um, others have come to you for this level of expertise. What would you list as some of the more successful initiatives or efforts um, around getting greater collaboration towards building uh, a common vision? So I think uh, a couple of things, you know, come to the surface right away. One is that uh, our agency or our organization ultimately benefits um, through our mandate, which is to be a coordinating body uh, mm-hmm. to drive, uh, to drive collaboration, to, to drive um, uh, innovation through that level of coordination, so active matchmaking between government, academia, and industry. We think that's that's been the secret to the success of what we're doing. And then uh, if I was able to pick one of our four pillars as the one that leads the way, I'd argue that the ability to impact skills and workforce development um, has really resonated with industry in particular who are facing that massive skills gap. So the ability to generate uh, short-term and long-term talent creation through the education programs, the immigration support programs, et cetera, has really driven industry to our door. Yeah. So that's curious. Um, we hear frequently uh, stateside and elsewhere about the skills gap shortage. We've talked with recruiters who um, think that by the time a CEO or a head of HR approaches them, they've sort of boxed themselves in they haven't anticipated the skills that they're they actually need two years out um so do you think that the skills building efforts have already started to bear fruit in other words does new brunswick generally suffer the same shortage or do you think that's begin you're beginning to fill that gap I think we're starting to fill the gap, and it's uh, exactly to your point the the level of coordination has to increase uh, between the academic institutions at all levels, as well as industry. Uh, and then, uh, you know, obviously, um, uh, government has to get involved to ensure that, that the, the learnings are actually being implemented. So in the example here that, that I can give in terms of what, what we're doing, 
is we actually have a team who's out talking to industry and asking them, look, if you're going to forecast your HR needs one, two, three, four years out, what does that look like? Map that. And mm-hmm. so we're mapping everything to uh, to the U.S. Uh, NIST uh, NICE framework around mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to create those those kind of national and global standards so that we're talking the same language. And then we're going to the universities, colleges, private institutions, and even into the, the K-12 programs and, and saying, look, this this is where the gaps are. This is where the jobs will be in the one, three, five, six years as identified by the industry who needs those um, skilled workers and then build the curriculums that match the outputs. And so we're starting to get in front of that now. Um, and and we're, we're really excited about, about where that's going. Yes, I find the the education uh, coordination particularly fascinating. Um, we have seen recent reports of how a lot of countries that have historically had to deal with disinformation operations are now combating fake news in in the era of the speed and scale of social media. So for example, Finland has started educating students K through 12 in trying to be able to spot fake content or uh, bot behavior and also just teach general critical thinking skills that help their citizenry. So it is a whole society effort, which I fully uh, agree with. So could you talk a little bit about what those education efforts look like? Sure. And, and you know, it's a, it's, it's a great comment you're making about what's happening in, in countries around the world. What, what we're doing here, um, we have a, uh, so in the uh, kindergarten to grade six uh, age groups, we have what we call a cyber immunization program, which connects a, um, a kind of a comic book uh, with uh, specific characters, with um, cyber awareness training for young kids around their activities online to kind of uh, till the soil for what happens in grades 7 to grade 12, Mm -hmm. where it's more active engagement uh, around cyber awareness, uh, the career paths available uh, in cybersecurity, and then getting them into programs like Cyber Titan, which mirrors the Cyber Patriot program out of the States. Uh, where they can actually become, you know, super users or, or super aware students on what's happening in the digital economy and become more savvy. Uh, what I what I think is phenomenal, but what you mentioned earlier about some of the countries, uh, such as Finland, and we're seeing it here now resonate is the is the hard and soft uh, training approach to cyber. So we're we're seeing, for example, in the province in New Brunswick, we're seeing uh, a, a marriage happening um, that we're helping to coordinate between the hard skills. Of, 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 a, of, a, of a cyber, uh, uh, you know, traditional cyber role and the soft skills that, you know, help people understand and connect the dots on what's happening, you know, what's happening to social democracy, what's happening politically, what's happening at the, uh, you know, psychology level of, of, of what's, what's, what is digital, um, digital corruption look like? What is it, what does it do? How does it impact society? So we're, we're, we're looking at that now coming down the pipe in terms of the multi you know, multidisciplinary approaches to, to cyber, uh, and the, and the digital economy to create a much more uh, capable, um, uh, individual when they come out, whether they're going into a hard cyber trade or a hard cyber uh, career, or they're you know, heading into other professions that must understand the nuances of, of the impact of the digital economy and some of the cyber threats out there. Yes. I mean, that strikes me as extremely forward thinking as, as we've argued that now the attacks, while still concentrated against infrastructure, such as servers and networks, you know, the new front is just 
perception. It's hacking the human mind. So it makes sense that if you're trying to strengthen your systems, that that would also include your populace because that's where the information warfare is taking place. No, that's that, you know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, years ago, um, I'm dating myself here, but you know, we used to look at, you know, how many, how many times was a story, you know, could you triangulate a story to determine whether it actually happened or not? And could mm-hmm. you, could you, could you, could you validate a story through multiple reports? Uh, and of course we, we see in the digital world where you can have multiple reports come from the exact same source um, over and over again. And so it becomes a more difficult uh, challenge, but uh, uh, the one, the one kind of um, unexpected consequence is you have a much more tech savvy youth uh, who are much more easily adaptable to understanding the complexities of what's happening in that particular space. So as long as we can train them and open their eyes to to what what might be happening and, and how to become more um, uh, critical consumers of what they see online, I think we're in a really good spot. Yes, and is is the Cyber Titan program like a either ethical hacking or like a red teaming exercise? Correct. Right. So so similar to Cyber Patriot. It's uh, around vulnerability detection and mm-hmm. some type of ethical hacking work. And, and what's what's fascinating about the program uh, that we see is uh, the province of New Brunswick and, and our education programs and our industry participants here in the ecosystem have really gotten on board. And so last year, as an example, in Canada, it's, uh, it's an annual contest and you have to register teams uh, of up to six students per team in middle school and high school. And so there were 190 teams registered last year, which is a great uh, increase year over year, uh, run out of Ottawa from a group called ICTC, which is a phenomenal not-for-profit. Uh, 127 teams of the 190 come from the province of New Brunswick, which for everyone listening that's not familiar with uh, Canadian geography or Canadian population, uh, the population for the entire province of New Brunswick is under 800,000 people. Uh, and so the, the fact that we own the, the majority of teams competing uh, and then we have a massive cyber uh, defense league program that's kind of an informal cyber titan program that runs in the province with another 500, 600 students actively engaged. We have, a, we have about 1,000 students in the province who are uh, highly capable, uh, cyber-savvy individuals. I mean, that's just a, that's just a staggering proportion of the national population <laughs> concentrated into this one province. It, it, it's, it's phenomenal to think of um, how far above our weight we're actually punching as a province when mm-hmm. it comes to uh, digital education and the engagement of students. And uh, we believe we have more to do. We believe we're simply scratching the surface right now in the province. And we, we have a real roadmap ahead of us in terms of how we're going to how we're going to grow that. And we're hoping that we can also influence other provinces here in the country of, uh, to, to, to really uh, embrace what's happening out here on the East Coast and move it across the country. Have you seen that? Have other provinces started to knock on your door and say, you know, teach us what you've done? You know, we have, I'd say yes, but uh, we've had... We, we work really closely with the federal government, so the mm-hmm. government of Canada and a number of their agencies. We have close working relationships and actual formal working relationships with a number of the agencies. Uh, provincially, we work closely with uh, uh, schools, um, universities and colleges, as well as industry partners uh, specifically, rather than necessarily the provinces themselves. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one of the other benefits of, of, of the province of New Brunswick is we're, we're a small province, and so 
you know, there's two degrees of separation or one degree of separation between any particular member of government that you need to talk to in industry. Whereas in some of the larger provinces, uh, as I'm sure you can appreciate, and so I'm sure some of the states are the same way, where the ability to navigate uh, in a timely manner the bureaucracy of, of uh, provincial or state-level government is very difficult. So uh, we've had a lot more engagement with uh, private sector and industry uh, and, and the uh, academic world directly than we have with the with the provinces themselves. Okay, great. Well, obviously, it's not all sunshine and unicorns. Um, <laughs> in this uh, three-year um, uh, effort so far, what have been some of the, the challenges that you've seen in trying to either coordinate or connect or matchmake, either at an organizational level, like you've had to just learn how to do things, or maybe at a societal level, like you know, mutual distrust or or overcoming yeah. suspicion. So I think many, many, many challenges that uh, we've overcome and some that we continue on with today. So I think that the first one was simply to to be able to uh, move from a vision uh, or an idea into a strategy, and then from there, it's the how do you operationalize a strategy? And so I think we've we've managed to turn the corner on that in the last eighteen months. Uh, and now we're, you know, arguably we're a, we're a, we're a, um, we're a scale up organization right now. And mm-hmm. so our job now is to scale uh, everything that we've been doing. And so we have a, we have a plan ahead of us to be able to do that, that we believe will allow us to um, put wind into the sails of our four, four pillar strategy and really grow here in the province and beyond, uh, which will be the, to the benefit of the entire ecosystem uh, across industry, academia, and government. Some of the other challenges we continue to face um, is to also, when, especially on the education side, is engaging the public. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the the moms and dads of the students out there, how do we ensure that they understand what programs are available, what they should be demanding from their school system um, in terms of courses and uh, new technologies and how to ensure that they are seeing their son or daughter uh, graduate with relevant skills and competencies that are going to be in demand in, in the digital world, not just in the cyber world. So we have... We're also working hard on a, on an engagement strategy with with the public, uh, mm-hmm. with the civil society, to try and engage on that as well. And so that's that's a constant battle. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, uh, news and information that's competing for uh, public interest out there. And so we're trying to uh, make sure that we uh, occupy a small space in people's minds to keep them front and center on the the importance of uh, educational development when it comes to uh, digital. Uh, digital economy, digital world going forward. Yeah, I think a, a common challenge for any organization, be it private enterprise or nonprofit, at the forefront of something is to reimagine where the populace is, which is usually several years behind that front line, right? So I think very much still in the popular imagination, cybersecurity, just that word connotes kind of 90s era hacking and or like <laughs> geopolitical conflict when in fact the most attacked uh, sector is SMBs, right? They're small, medium businesses that can be held for ransom for $10,000 and that's just going to torpedo uh, most businesses. Well, and you know, on that note, I uh, couldn't, couldn't agree with you anymore. And I think one of the, one of the messages we're trying to get out to everyone that we're talking to in critical infrastructure protection as well as the SMB uh, segment is that um, cybersecurity uh, is a business enablement 
um, um, tool. It's a business enablement capacity within a company. And so it needs to be seen as not as a cost center, but as an economic driver uh, that you can continue to uh, operate efficiently, that you can um, continue to transact business. And so it needs to be seen in the same way uh, as other core business functions within an organization that generate revenue and keep, keep, keep the lights on within a company. And I think we're starting to turn the corner on that, but that's a maturity. I think that's a maturity yes, issue absolutely. in the industries. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> yeah, I've seen uh, at a couple of conferences, you know, some people hold some CISOs feet to the fire by saying, you know, how many of you will ever become a CEO or how long do you think you're going to be in your job? Because if your functions don't touch the business, don't touch revenue, then you're always seen as a, a nice to have or an extra or like a life insurance plan, but not a, a critical core part of the business that requires a seat at the table. I couldn't agree with you anymore. You know, I've, I've come through the slings and arrows of the security risk management world over my career. And I think that was one of my biggest aha moments was, you know, as you're moving uh, into uh, positions where you can influence more on the business outcomes, you need to become you, the, the CISO or the C-level uh, risk management executive. You have to understand the business model and you need to be able to translate what you do into how that impacts business growth. Uh, and revenue. And if, mm-hmm. if you can't speak that language and you can't cross the chasm on that conversation, a lot of uh, great people get stuck fighting for dollars every year because they're not perceived or seen or they haven't articulated the value proposition of you know uh, risk management as a business enabler. And I think that's a, that's a common uh, downfall, shortfall of the entire industry and something that we need to uh, collectively uh, work on, but also it's incumbent upon the the boards uh, of organizations and the the CEO the CEO executives to now understand the business enablement requirements on um, uh, cybersecurity around you know the, the the whole digital economy depends on safety by design, security by design. Yes, and uh, I think and that actually is what yeah, and I think to your point your about like a multidisciplinary approach is that today's security professionals came up. Uh, quite rapidly through like a very um, narrow focus, right? Here are the security systems. The world is rapidly going online. We're migrating to the cloud. But we have encountered clients where there is friction between security and sales. Let's say a sales team goes rogue and starts using essentially shadow IT, right? And and at a fundamental business level, it is – sort of shocking to realize that the security teams may not even know how the sales team is comped. So for example, if the sales team as individuals is highly motivated by or pushed by a certain quota, they will use whatever tools necessary to get to that quota. So in the case of one of our clients, I think we've talked about here anonymously is that if you have a a sales team in a country like Brazil or India, where WhatsApp is the norm, and you have the CIO or the head of compliance saying you can't use that channel because it's unapproved. I think there's a fundamental disconnect because really the sales team is just thinking, how am I going to meet my numbers if no one answers email or phone or whatever the quote unquote approved channel is, right? So it's just that that <laughs> fundamental understanding of like how do people operate inside your business and what are they motivated by, which is a psychological aspect. It's not a, a systems understanding. Well, and that's and and that's a different conversation that has to start to occur. That's a 
that's a new think uh, that has not been there before. And so to your earlier comment, I think it's a, it's, it's, you know, we're, you're eventually going to see the C-suite, you know, as it evolves over time uh, and as the, as the chairs change names, uh, you're going to see that naturally evolve as the uh, next generation of senior executives understand the nuances and how to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's, it, it, it really behooves uh, a lot of traditional industry as well to get there now, get there faster, uh, to avoid the level of threat to the organization that they're placing at the feet of the organization without even understanding it. Yeah. Um, I want to return to your point about uh, connecting uh, private enterprise to academia or, or trying to understand, for example, the skills they need. So I think at the enterprise level, we are seeing these shifts and certainly um, legislation, which puts uh, penalties on data breaches is motivating um, others to take cybersecurity seriously. I still think a lot of uh, SMBs feel like it's a, a big league problem unless they've been affected, in which case, you know, they're, they're very intimately concerned about it, but still in the main, it feels like, well, cyber is a nice to have, and it's still kind of like a insurance policy and I haven't been attacked yet, so I don't really need it. Um, so I was curious as to, you'd said that you're working on setting some standards or trying, is there a big education gap between those two levels of industry between enterprise and SMB? You know, I, I think, uh, I think more than the education gap, uh, I, I'll take, I'll, I'll go a different direction from what we're seeing. What, what we're seeing here is it's, uh, it's too big a bite. And so mm-hmm. um, this question is highly relevant right now. We've had some really interesting movement recently. We had an announcement from our federal government here uh, a couple of years ago. So <clears throat> if, if standards like ISO uh, 27001, et cetera, are the only recognized certifications that, are going to have relevance in the supply chain or have relevance for uh, getting cyber insurance, et cetera. It is such a heavy lift. Mm-hmm. And so even large corporations shy away from that designation or, or from some of these massive lifts because it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's death by audit and it's, it's, it's heavy lift and it takes them, it distracts them away from their core business. And so they just avoid doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in the small and mid-sized business world, that's, that's amplified. And so, uh, what we've been working on here is to bring that cyber essentials program out of the UK uh, into Canada, and we've had success in developing that kind of Canadian version and, and getting it getting it out to market. But but kudos to our federal government; they've stepped up and said, "Look, we we believe that this type of supply chain risk management for Canadian companies." needs to be available and uh, cost affordable to all companies. And so they've stepped up and they've announced a national uh, business certification program for cybersecurity that will be highly affordable uh, and standardized across the country. Uh, and we're, we're very happy to report that CyberMB will, uh, we've already signed partner agreement. We'll be working closely with the government of Canada on that initiative. So I think it's, 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 having something that's digestible and can mm-hmm. be actually absorbed by a company to deliver on versus these, these massive undertakings that, you know, have massive impact to bottom line. Right. And just, yes, just easily applicable in terms of impact. How quickly can I implement it? It actually fixes the problem or at least addresses the risk and the vulnerabilities. And then um, for all the SMBs listening out there, would probably lower the cost of any cyber insurance premium, right? To just demonstrate that you've, you've covered your bases rather than your, your fingers crossed. 
Well, and you know, the last thing you also want, I mean, and we've actually seen this here in Canada, we've seen companies that are small, mid-sized companies that are key parts of um, uh, primes when it comes to their supply chains. And the primes will push down a notice and say, hey, guess what? You need to demonstrate uh, Mm -hmm. compliance to NIST. And uh, you better do that real soon or we're not going to buy your widgets anymore. And so in the blink of an eye, uh, you can go from uh, a supplier supplier that, you know, full supplier to no supplier. And if that's 40% of your annual revenues, um, you're almost out of business. So, so I think it's, you know, and, and, and I make the parallel, I've had this conversation where I made the parallel between the physical supply chain. You think of what happened, uh, pre nine 11, we introduced, Fast and the U.S. introduced CTPAT for physical transborder shipments to ensure security of the physical supply chain. And then when 9/11 happened, uh, the borders were closed to pretty much all shipments except for those that were CTPAT and Fast certified. And well, uh, guess what? The voluntary rate of adoption of those certifications went sky high <laughs> once they realized that their shipments weren't weren't crossing borders. And so hopefully we can avoid uh, the 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 traditional uh, security risk management conundrum of where there must be a massive calamity before people adopt. And so uh, it's it's the exact same thing we're talking about here today, but we're talking about it in the cyber realm, which doesn't respect borders or geographies. And so... And increasingly where transactions take place, right? I mean, that's... Absolutely. You, you may be a shipping so, business, so but everything is stored in databases in the cloud. <laughs> exactly. And so it's great that you're physically protected on the supply chain, but if you're not digitally protected, uh, it's irrelevant and you can be equally as breached and put out of business. All right. Well, um, what briefly do you think the future holds for CyberMB? I know you've talked about trying to upscale your operationalization. What do you think is like the, you know, the grand vision of, of what we can expect to hear from CyberMB? So I think what you'll see in the next uh, uh, year and uh, year or two as we move this forward is we we want to scale. So mm-hmm. so we see ourselves as ready for the next level, and we have incredible support uh, from our provincial government to to back us on this. And we're looking to uh, move into the not for profit sector where we can access uh, much more capital, uh, uh, be involved in many more projects, and uh, be able to. Um, uh, increase the level of collaboration and integration of the government, uh, academia, and industry, not just here in the province, but across the country and and, and potentially internationally. So uh, we want to increase our level of partnership and our level of collaboration, both here in the country and abroad. Uh, and we uh, obviously, we, we stay fairly steadfast focused on uh, key sectors that are critical to uh, economic uh, operations of a nation. So your critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, but I think you, you'll, if things go well, you're going to see CyberNB uh, morph into something that uh, transcends the borders um, and can increase the level of collaboration and commercialization. Sounds great. Um, thank you again for the time. It was good talking to you in person. Good talking to you now. And uh, for our listeners, if you're in the area, I encourage you to visit CyberNB. I particularly enjoy the fact that you're um, meeting rooms are named after calamitous events. We spoke in Stuxnet. But I also <laughs> saw signs for WannaCry and NotPetya. Um, hopefully, there's not. Yes, you have a, to have a sense of humor. Yes, yes. I mean, and you know, fingers crossed that you don't have a reason to name yet another room anytime soon. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, thank you again, Tyson, for taking the time. We uh, wish CyberMB all the best. Thanks, George. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to talk to you again. All right. Take care now. Bye bye. Thank you.
That was really interesting. I really enjoyed my time up in Canada, and I hope to hear more from CyberNB and um, a lot of the stuff that they're innovating on very soon. But in the news this week, we are looking at two big pieces uh, of news. One is Facebook and Twitter uh, calling out misinformation and disinformation operations and the steps that they have taken to crack down um, with respect to campaigns targeting Hong Kong protests. So it appears that the state was actually paying for ads across both platforms to spread the message that they wanted to share. Yeah, new wrinkle. In addition to some organic content, some of which was laughable, such as Twitter followers created like last week with three followers. (laughs) Uh, I think the new wrinkle here is the extension of state media arm into paid media, um, which basically allows them to try and culture jam on keywords and, and certain topics. Um, and this is the, I think a good point buried in these articles is that Twitter flagged the issue for Facebook and then Facebook started working on it. I think that's a good sign in terms of the cooperation between the two platforms, which is really necessary in order to combat large scale misinformation campaigns. Yes, I mean it's cross channel if if you continue to operate in your own little sandbox, it's not uh ever going to be effective because that's not how these information campaigns are are waged. Um other big news uh continuing on the fallout from the Capital One breach, we have a class action lawsuit targeting not only the bank but also GitHub, which is the online data repository, um, essentially claiming that GitHub bears some responsibility because it actively encourages uh, hacking and storing stolen data. I think the legal grounds um, are debatable, but um, I think that was one of the huge takeaways that we saw from Capital One was you need the ability to go out and proactively uh, target your scans to get this kind of intelligence because there were signs uh, long before somebody spotted the actual network misconfiguration. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about this as it comes up in the news until the next big data breach. Yes. Well, (laughs) fingers crossed that we can go another 24 hours without one of those. But um, until then, as always, we thank Matias Savaletti for our theme music, Abby Roos for our sound design and production. Um, Until next time, stay safe. This is The Zero Hour, signing off. 